My name's Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. So today we're joined by the writer, researcher, Nina Yankovic, who's written a book called How to Lose the Information War that I've been reading all week and has been fascinating me, but also terrify me in equal measures. How are you, Nina? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Matthew. I guess it's not easy publicizing a book in a time like this. No, it is not what I thought it would be. That's for sure. I was actually, my last trip in the real world was to the UK in March, and I was coming home just as everyone was locking down. And still at that point, we thought, oh, maybe I'll be back in the summer for a book party, but that's not going to happen. On the bright side, it seems like people are reading a lot more. So I hope they'll be picking up my book as well. Yeah, well, I can strongly recommend it. As I say, it's unputdownable for a variety of reasons. So Nina, let's get into the conversation. But I'm afraid you, like all our guests, have to be subject to the core question we ask at the beginning of the podcast, which is, Nina Yankovic, what is your big idea for the post-COVID world? My big idea is informational distancing. So it ties in, of course, to social distancing, what we've been doing here during the pandemic, but it's certainly something that I think we need to navigate the informational flows that have been kind of proliferating, especially during the coronavirus crisis, but certainly before that as well. So what is informational distancing? It is recognizing that disinformation and a lot of online manipulation happen and run on the currency of emotion. And when you feel yourself getting emotional in reaction to a piece of content you are encountering online, distance yourself from it. Close your laptop, put down your phone, go for a walk. And if then you still find yourself you know, thinking about that in a couple of minutes, then it's time to do a little bit of research, you know, engage your media literacy skills, do some lateral reading, do a reverse image search if you're finding yourself questioning an image, and certainly just thinking before you share. This is a way that we can add some friction to our online environment and slow the spread of bad information. And that's going to persist certainly long after the coronavirus crisis. So Nina, that's such an important idea, and I really want to explore it. And I think it's going to lead us some very interesting kind of places for our conversation. But before we do that, I just want to talk a bit more about the book, because it seems to me there are two things I particularly valued. The first was the case studies of other countries in Eastern Europe, and your impatience with the West for not recognising what happened in Estonia, what happened in Ukraine, what was happening in Poland, and that had we understood that, had we been more respectful, we would have understood what was coming our way. And you know, that put me in mind of what's happened in COVID, where had we been more respectful in the early stages about what they were doing in East Asian countries like Taiwan, we might have made less of a mess of it in the UK and the US. So tell us first about that part of the book. And the importance for us in understanding how other countries, often quite small, vulnerable countries, have had to deal with disinformation and misinformation. 
Sure. So I got the idea for the book when I was living and working in Ukraine. I was there as part of a Fulbright Public Policy Fellowship, and I was advising the Ukrainian government, in particular the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, on strategic communications. And Ukraine has for a long time been on the front lines of the information war, whether that was in the Soviet era or certainly now since the Euromaidan revolution in 2013 and 2014. And I happened to be in Ukraine as the 2016 US election was happening, as all of the revelations about Russian interference were coming to light. And I just, I found myself extremely frustrated because not only had this been going on in Ukraine at a fever pitch for the last several years and actually, you know, endangering people's lives. Ukraine has a war on, 13,000 people have died as a result of that war and information war plays a big part in that conflict. But there were examples from around the region that For a long time, the United States and its Western allies thought, okay, you know, that's happening over there. That's nice. But we're strong enough that it's not going to happen to us. Russia or any other adversary can't manipulate us the way that it can manipulate the countries in its own backyard. And that's clearly proven to be false. And, you know, these countries have been trying their best, often with very little help from the West, to respond to this, to protect themselves for more than a decade. And so as we got into this new understanding of how the information space was being weaponized by actors like Russia, I thought it was really important to tell their stories so we didn't have to reinvent the wheel. And you described some, you know, really impressive kind of heroic individuals who responded to this at a time when, you know, the rest of us hadn't even come across these kinds of ideas and these kinds of threats. And for them, You know, it's a kind of life and death issue. If you're close to the Russian border, if it's in recent memory that you were part of the Soviet empire, these are visceral kind of life-threatening questions, aren't they? Absolutely. And I think, you know, that made some of the Central and Eastern European allies that I describe in the book a little bit more clear-eyed about the threat. That being said, it's really interesting, and I think this is an important takeaway for countries in the West, especially the United States right now, You can be clear-eyed about the Russian threat and have it spelled out in your national security doctrine and still have a government that doesn't recognize that using disinformation domestically for your own political purposes undermines all of those foreign policy and national security doctrines that you've put into place. I think you're talking there particularly about Poland, aren't you, Nina? Yeah, Poland and to some extent Georgia and the Czech Republic are also dealing with a similar issue, which is kind of crazy because, you know, the Republic of Georgia has been occupied in part, 20% of it has been occupied by Russia since 2008. And the Czech Republic has no love lost with Russia either. And yet their governments to some degree are using these tactics and undermining the good work that their civil servants are doing. But certainly that's the case in Poland. Unfortunately, Poland doesn't realize that its own societal fissures, its polarization over the past five or six years especially, has been really weaponized by Russia in order to turn poles against one another. And certainly we're seeing the same thing here in the United States. And that's going to take us to the second theme, and I think the strongest theme of all of your book, which is that you want us to avoid reducing this to simply being a kind of threat that can be summed up in a phrase, a lazy phrase like fake news, or that can be dealt with by a strategy of trying to kind of individually close down toxic accounts, an approach which you vividly describe as whacker troll. You want us instead to understand that what is happening here is the systematic exploitation of divisions that we have ourselves and susceptibilities that we have ourselves. 
yeah, you're exactly right. And this is something that's been extremely frustrating here in the United States in particular, not just in the national security space where I think, you know, I've been involved in countless conversations where people are like, well, we just need more effective sanctions. You know, we just need to push back on the Russians harder. Let's expel some more diplomats. That's good. That's part of the solution. But we're still going to be vulnerable if we don't think about the root causes themselves. And then on the other side of the coin, you have the tech folks who indeed just seem to want to play whack-a-troll and for us to celebrate every time they take down some inauthentic account online. But what they don't understand is that Russia and other bad actors, you know, for them, this is like throwing spaghetti at the wall and they have an unlimited supply of spaghetti. They keep throwing it until they see what sticks. And then they keep, you know, throwing that same (laughs) sticky piece of spaghetti over and over. And they're happy to, you know, invest all of their resources and in more and more of that spaghetti. It's not some grand strategy. It's that they are really just inundating us and flooding the zone. And that's the point of it, which means that we need to turn inward kind of and figure out how to make ourselves safer at home because we're going to continue to get inundated unless we take more drastic action. But this is a generational investment. And I think people get really frustrated when they hear me talking about things like media and digital literacy or civics or investments in journalism. They say, you know, what can we do now? And unfortunately, you know, we have to recognize that Russia has been doing this for generations. They're very good at it. And even the campaign here in the United States leading up to the 2016 election had been going on for several years before we even recognized that it was a problem. They're practiced at this, and I think we need to make generational investments in response to their generational investments. Otherwise, we're going to be stuck in this kind of carnival-like atmosphere of whack for time immemorial. Your approach reminded me a bit of the socio-technological approach, which I think I first came across really richly in the writings of Evgeny Moritzov, who encouraged us to understand that technology matters. You do have to understand the nature of the technology and the way the technology works in specific terms, what it makes possible, that what's possible on Twitter is different from what's possible on Facebook, is different from what's possible on Instagram or whatever. But never think the explanation lies just in the technology. You always have to understand who controls the technology, how it's being used, what it's exploiting in us. So not only do you want us to avoid just talking about, you know, fake news or trolls, you want us to understand this is not primarily a technological problem. Absolutely. It's a human problem. And I I totally agree with Morozov on those issues. What's different about this realm of disinformation, this era of disinformation is, you know, the tools and tactics that are being used. Absolutely. But Disinformation has been democratized. Anybody with a credit card and a social media account and some knowledge of how the platforms work can seed and spread this stuff. And that's why we're seeing a proliferation of domestic disinformation, both in the UK and the US and basically every other country in the world, because it's just so easy to do. It takes a little bit of understanding about exactly how the platforms work, how they manipulate our psychology and our attention, and the fact that they are doing that for monetary gain. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand. I still get responses in my Twitter timeline to things that I post from people who don't understand that both that timeline and their Facebook newsfeed are curated, that they're not just seeing a chronological you know, line of posts coming out them from all the people that they follow. And I think if people understood, you know, that their engagement was being monetized for the gain of Facebook's shareholders, they might start interacting a little bit differently, for instance, on that platform where it's most pronounced. And certainly they're being manipulated not only through the newsfeed itself, through notifications, but through things like groups, which is something I'm really worried about ahead of the 2020 election in particular. 
Facebook has really invested in groups as kind of private, trusted spaces in the wake of Cambridge Analytica and the 2016 election. But actually, they're really vectors for manipulation because they're people organized around, you know, one interest, often highly emotional spaces, but again, very trusted spaces within a community, even though they can be large communities of tens of thousands of people. And that's really easy for bad actors, whether foreign or domestic, to manipulate. So again, understanding how you're being manipulated both by the platforms, but also by people who seek to exploit them is really important in today's digital era. So here I thought was another echo of learning from COVID, which is that it isn't simply about how do you defeat this virus, but it's about a deeper question about the resilience that you have to future pandemics. And I think what you're urging us to think about is the resilience of societies in a world where, whether it's Russia or North Korea or whoever it might be, let's just assume there's going to be some bad folks outside who are going to use technology in one way or another. And even when you close down one channel, they use another channel. And so if that's the case, just like there will be pandemics, there will be viruses, the question is not, well, how do we deal with each individual one? The question is also, how do we become more resilient as a society, as a system, as a democratic system in dealing with that? So that notion of resilience is one that you're drawing our attention to as well, I think. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. And it's not just about creating the structures necessary so we can deliver, you know, fulsome media literacy training. It's about the structures that lead to a healthier information environment overall. And in the end of the book, I draw a comparison between the UK and the US. Of course, I know, you know, everyone has complaints about the BBC sometimes, but I admire the BBC. I think the fact that the BBC still holds, you know, over 50% trust in society, especially at a time of crisis. That's not something we could ever hope to achieve here in the current information climate in the United States. And I know you pay licensing fees for your BBC, but I think it's a huge contribution, not only to your own democratic discourse, but to the world. The World Service is, is obviously a, you know, a gem in the crown. And here in the United States, of course, we spend $3 per person per year on our Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which funds NPR and PBS. And then we've got our you know, foreign broadcasters, Voice of America, Radio Free Europe in particular, that are of interest to me in my area of the world, which you may have heard just a couple of weeks ago, got a new director at the US Agency for Global Media, a Trump appointee who fired all of the directors of the services and dismissed the board and is trying to politicize those services, which I think is a huge mistake. And we really need to be investing more in journalism as a public good, not only for, you know, projecting American values abroad and the values of democracy abroad, but also here in the United States and ensuring that people in news deserts have access to things like NPR and PBS, where often those are the only stations that are covering that part of the country. Instead, you know, we've got this privatized news environment that has become highly polarized and really doesn't have trust of people. So I think that's part of the the long-term solution that Americans really need to get behind if we are to even out this information environment and make ourselves more resilient. Part of that is access to good information. And another vector that I think we should all be exploring a little bit more is public libraries as a vector of training, of trust in society. I think they could definitely deliver things like media literacy and digital literacy training, civics courses to adults who are voting right now. You know, often we focus on school age children for these things, but we need to reach the voting age population as well. And libraries are still very highly trusted 
in American society. And I think, you know, given that they are a nonpartisan vector, it's a way to reach people that I think we've not yet explored. I agree with all of that. And, you know, I think we often need Americans and others to remind us that two of our greatest institutions, the NHS and the BBC, are ones that we too often take for granted. And I think both institutions, we have been reminded of their significance in the last few months. But I want to go back to what you said at the beginning, Nina, in terms of this notion of a kind of reflexivity that we need to practice, which is that when something emotionally grabs our attention, particularly in social media, that we need to kind of pause and reflect. And if it continues to grab us, we need to then dig underneath it. We mustn't just simply respond to it. Now, I kind of get that. But as somebody who's been involved in politics, you know, all my life, what worries me, in a sense, is that there are certain kind of deep problems about group identity in politics. And of course, we live in a time of identity politics. And one of those problems is that it only takes one person to disrupt a group, but it takes a whole lot of people to make a group functional. So in a sense, you don't need many people. So forget Russia, forget anywhere outside. You don't need many people within a movement who are kind of poisonous or extreme or unbalanced for the whole movement to be taken over by that. Yeah, I've been sounding the alarm bell about what I call domestic disinformers for a couple of years. And I think only just now in the United States, as we get toward the 2020 election, are we really starting to grapple with that identity, which I think is what you're referring to with kind of poisonous people in groups who are using the tactics, perhaps of disinformation to their own political means. I think, you know, With regard to informational distancing and kind of the new way of being online that we need to practice, a good analogy, and I did not come up with this, this came from the general counsel of Adobe. They're, of course, the folks who put out things like Premiere and and Photoshop, and they're thinking a lot about disinformation because of deep fakes, which are created using their software. And he said, you know, we need to create an idea, a way of being online where just like when you get an email from someone purporting to be a Nigerian prince who's going to give you money, you know that that's not real. When you get a phone call, you know, here in the US, this happens a lot saying that your social security number has been compromised and, you know, you need to give over some personal data, which ends up being an identity theft scheme. We know that those spam phone calls aren't real. And we need to develop that same sort of rigor for the information that we encounter online. And I think that will help not only with foreign disinformers, but with people who are just trying to poison the conversation in the domestic sphere as well. And some of those people have ulterior political motives. Some of them have monetary motives. Some of them are after, you know, personal fame and fortune. But we need to recognize that we shouldn't trust everything that we see on the internet, no matter who it's coming from, unless you know that person specifically. And then even so, (laughs) I've had to respond to family members a couple of times for questionable content that they have shared. And we need to learn how to do that in a, you know, civil and respectful way, because so often the internet removes that context and removes that civility. And I think it's possible, you know, not everybody is going to take to this with alacrity. But I think, you know, if the majority of people are operating this way, if we can create that new way of understanding the information that we're consuming for most people, then we'll be in a way better spot than we are now. But it's part of the problem that we've tended, or perhaps it's I just do it because I'm a progressive, I tend to think of these as issues of disinformation, misinformation as being things which have been used primarily by kind of nationalist, populist 
movements. It's kind of their problem. But actually, what we have now on the progressive wing of politics is also a very charged kind of febrile atmosphere and one where denunciation is increasingly common, where people will be accused of saying things and you will get what was described to me on the other day as a kind of Twitter pitchfork mob descending and demanding that that individual be sacked or denounced or whatever it might be. So is that part of the issue here as well, is that as well as your distancing, as well as reflecting on what you read and your reactions to it, that if we do have an atmosphere that says that it isn't just obviously and demonstrably offensive things which need to be questioned, but areas where there is genuine disagreement now and still people will be denounced, that that is not an atmosphere which is a good atmosphere for addressing some of the problems you describe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. And some of the work that I've been doing, in addition to, you know, my writing and research is working with lawmakers to help them understand that this issue isn't a partisan issue. I think there's a misconception, particularly in the United States, that disinformation is something that only affects the right. And I say with great regret that it has definitely affected our left wing and, and progressive wing of politics as well. You know, in 2016, I saw an unfortunate number of Bernie Sanders supporters sharing links from outright propaganda outlets like RT and Sputnik. And as we've moved toward 2020, I think we've seen a lot of that kind of charged criticism being fueled and kind of amplified and supported by disinformation as well. And I think it's just really important to make that connection for people because I don't think they want to be manipulated. I think they want to protect our discourse and understand that, you know, Elections are for citizens of a country to decide they shouldn't be manipulated from the outside. And by engaging in that sort of poisonous political denunciation, we are leaving ourselves open to that manipulation. And we need to return to some sort of, you know, a bit more of a staid political debate, something that is a little bit less raucous, I would say, and, and poisonous um, and civil. And I know people criticize that word. There are some things that we should not be civil about. I, I totally agree. But I think in general, that civility could help us overall. And I'm particularly interested in this notion, given that you're American, because it seems to me that however much one wants to and should recognize inequality or racism, and however passionately one might feel about that, that in the end, we have only our kind of universalist values to fall back on. If we abandon ideas like due process, if we abandon civility, if we abandon free speech, albeit recognising that free speech is not the right to be gratuitously offensive, if we abandon those principles, there's nothing else to fall back on? Absolutely. And I think part of the big overarching idea with countering disinformation is a defense of our values and a debate about the values. I guess right now, those values don't appeal to everyone. And I think they need to be at the core of any of our work countering disinformation, whether foreign or domestic, or we've already lost. Because ultimately, what actors like Russia want to do is to undermine the democratic order, to undermine people's you know, belief in the system, trust in the system, participation. Democracy doesn't work without it. And those values are at the core of all of that. And we need to really make an appeal to everyone that they are worth defending. Well, Nina, it's been fantastic to talk to you. That's the lesson I took from your, I took lots of lessons from your book, but that's the lesson I took, which is that if we don't get the discourse right, we don't focus on how it is we have civil, reasoned, 
conversation, then ultimately, whoever might win in the short term, in the long term, society will suffer. Thank you for writing a brilliant book and thank you for coming on to my podcast. Thanks for having me, Matthew. I'm glad you enjoyed it. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.